You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) as a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like (laughs) Change.Dork. Change.Dork. And congratulations. You played yourself. Congratulations. You played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, I was interviewed by Fern Mellis at the 92nd Street Y for her long-running speaker series, Fashion Icons with Fern Malice. Fern has interviewed Oscar de la Renta, Diane von Furstenberg, really everyone in and around the fashion world. We had a candid conversation about my childhood, my marriage, my career, my friend Snoop, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, and lots more. I'm posting it here on the Martha Stewart Podcast. I know you'll enjoy hearing it. Thank you all for being here. Good evening. It's great to see so many of you here, as this has been a remarkable and very special season for fashion icons here at the 92NY. Those of you who have been coming through the years know I always have a special introduction with anecdotes and info about my guests that will surprise him or her. Well, tonight, I'm going to be joined by the busiest working woman on this planet. She has done it all and still has more to create and brand and sell. And hell, it's Martha Stewart. (laughs) We all know who she is, and I don't want to waste one more minute at the podium talking about her when I can have her on the stage talking with her. So now is the time to cancel your dinner reservations, as we've got a lot of years and stories to cover. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else, let's give a warm and appreciative welcome to my friend, the one and only Martha Stewart. Hi. Oh, thank you, Fern. Thank you. This is very exciting. I read your bio over today, and I found out we have something very much in common. You were brought up in Buffalo. 
I went to school in Buffalo, oh, to the University of Buffalo. Yeah. So my my maternal my maternal family, my mother's family, all um, worked and lived in Buffalo. And I know that that's where you learned canning and doing preserving. Oh, oh, so you know you did your homework okay. too. But my brother went to the University of Buffalo. He taught there dentistry, and he's uh, retired now, but he still lives in Buffalo. And I, I love that city. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. You were born on August 3rd, 1941, in Jersey City, New Jersey. Makes you how old? Oh, how old am I? I don't know. You have to do this subtraction. Um, I'm, I'm old. I'm 82, and Fern is not as old as I am. She was born in 1948. So. <laughs> you and Tom Ford are the only ones who called me out on my birthday on this stage. <laughs> You're Leo. I think you believe in the stars. I do. Leo positive traits, loyal, wise, confident, a natural leader and generous. Some negative traits, opinionated, attention seeking, arrogant and stubborn. Wow. <laughs> do you agree with any of those? They go well together. <laughs> okay. And some Leo celebrities for whatever it's worth. And they hold up well. That, yes. yes, well, you hold up well. <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, Madonna, President Obama, and Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Company. Yep, and Mr. Brady. And, uh, oh, there's a lot of people born on my birthday, too. Carly Close. So tell us about your parents. Edward Kostra. Kostyra. Kostyra. And, and Martha. Martha Roskowski. Is it a uh, Polish thing to name daughters after their mothers? Um, I, I don't know why. I, my father wanted his first daughter to be named Martha after his beloved wife. And uh, they met at, guess where, up in Buffalo. My father was taking a Polish language course. He, he's both parents, children of Polish immigrants who came, my, my maternal family and my paternal family all came from Poland, um, some from Lwów and some from Krakow. And they came uh, in the early part of the 20th century um, on by boat, went through Roosevelt, not Roosevelt Island, they Ellis went through Island. Ellis Island. And, um, and they went through Ellis Island and they um, changed their, they, they actually didn't change their name at the time. Some of their children have changed their names. My father was refused to change Kostyra. It's really Kostyra. And he did all the research at the New York Public Library. He took me there weekend after weekend to do genealogical research. He should have started Ancestry.com. But he found out that we were actually from the Isle of Kos, which is in Greece. So I also think I'm Greek. And, um, and then the, the, I guess they must have been mercenaries going up to Poland. And my mother's family um, settled in Buffalo, New York. My grandfather was celebrated at, on his 99th birthday as the longest living member of the Iron Workers Union in Buffalo. He was a decorative iron worker. He did all the balustrades and, and um, altars in Buffalo and those big churches. And he had hands. You never wanted to shake Grandpa's hand because he would break your little hand. Oh. No, he's so strong. He had the anvil all the time in his, in his hand. But he a very artistic and a lovely, lovely man. And he lived till 99. He was, uh, he was an amazing... So they, he, had, they had a very positive influence on your upbringing. Oh, very much. So I would spend a month, a summer, every year in Buffalo. I took the railroad by myself with a sandwich up to Buffalo. <laughs> Just one sandwich up to Buffalo? Just one sandwich. And I, I must have had a little cup of milk or something. But um, mom took care of that and got on the train in Newark, New Jersey and ended up in Buffalo. 
Okay, you have five siblings. Yes. Where I, do you fit in? I was second uh, oldest. My, my brother, Eric, the one who went to University of Buffalo, I. Uh, then my brother, Frank, who lives down in Alabama. And then my sister, Kathy, who lives sometimes in Austin and sometimes in Greenwich. And then my two youngest siblings, unfortunately, died not long ago. Oh, jeez. Are you still close with all the ones that you Oh, yeah. Okay, you, you've said in some interview that I read that you were the favorite child. Of my father. Of your father. Yes. How was how that shown? Well, um, I guess I paid the most attention to him. Um, Dad, was, Dad was, if you know the, the play, um, Death of a Salesman, my father was Willie Lohman. And a, sort of a disappointed, uh, un, not, I mean, I can't say my father was unsuccessful. He raised amazing children. So that is a great success for anybody. But he was always a kind of like deprecating, and, but also he was, he was the Eagle Scout counselor, and he would sit on the stage bare-chested with a great big Native American interest on, and he would show off like that, and then he would go back to selling pharmaceuticals. He started out selling Schaefer beer. Uh, you know, he was a salesman, he was, but he felt like he had never made it. And I always felt very bad about that, and I was very close to him, and he was the one who really educated me in literature. Um, when I read, the, when I read uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, he had to, and I was like 11 years old, he had to explain to me what The Scarlet Letter meant. Very educated man, very well read. He played the violin by ear. Uh, he would walk around the house shirtless, uh, playing the violin uh, all the time. He was always shirtless. I don't know why. He was like six, two and a half, blonde, curly hair, blue eyes, um, and uh, very handsome, and wore beautiful clothes, and uh, that was Dad. He sounds fabulous. Okay, your mother taught you how to cook and sew. What was her favorite dish that she taught you? Oh, pierogi, and I still make her pierogi. It's going to be, uh, that's one of the recipes in my hundredth book. Yep, my hundred favorite recipes. And, um, but I, I stood by her side. I was, the, I was like the student of the family, the, the serious student, and um, and my, you know, my brother, older brother was the hunter, the trapper. He would bring home the muskrats that he, he sold the skins to Sears Roebuck. And he got for like $15 a skin. So those muskrats were coming in during the February and March months when the muskrats were out breeding, I guess. And I had to do the skinning because I was the oh. neatest. And you'd hang them up in the sink in the basement over these old soapstone sinks. And I had a scalpel. And I was, I was like a surgeon. So I could get them with no holes in them. You get more money if you didn't have a hole in the muskrat skin. And, uh, but he was also a hunter he, and a fisherman. So I tied all the flies. So if the people in the audience, any men who are trout fishermen, I tie the best flies. Not those flies, the little flies. <laughs> All of this makes perfect sense, given how your life and career evolved. Yeah. Even at that age, you were doing all of this. Oh, yeah. And Flies. they were all entrepreneurial. Yep. Baking. Uh, Mom was a great baker, but she always asked me for my vinaigrette recipe because I made the best vinaigrette in the family, and they still ask me for it. Are you going to share that with us? I've shared it a million times, and they still don't know how to make it. <laughs> Do you all know her vinaigrette recipe? <laughs> oh, somebody else. All right. We'll have to get It'll it. be in the 100th book. It'll be in the book. <laughs> Um, describe one of your first jobs at 10 years old. You were babysitting for some very famous people's children, Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra. Oh, yeah. All the Yankees hired the girls from Nutley High School to come to, like, Englewood and around there, the George Washington Bridge, to babysit for their kids. We were known as the reliable ones. And, of course, what the heck? I never got a baseball. I never got a baseball card. Nothing from these guys. 
And the only one who remembered me, sort of, his wife remembered me very well, was Yogi Berra. And so I was babysitting for his children, too. And I, 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 up until a couple years ago, I was still seeing Yogi Berra at Yankee mm -hmm. Stadium, because I still love those stupid Yankees. <laughs> Okay, we'll pass on. And I did the first pitch, two, I think, two or three years ago. Yes. Yeah. I didn't quite make it to home plate, but it was right in, fr right in front of home plate, which when you watch all the other silly first pitches, I mean, most of the guys don't even get even 10 feet within home plate. <laughs> and most of them go off, like, to third base or to first base. I got it straight. And I practiced. I practiced. And you also organized their birthday parties. Oh, yes, we did a that, lot that of birthday parties, yes. That was, that was the beginning. I was, I was organizing birthday parties from the time I was maybe eight years old, seven or eight years old. I was very good at organizing and entertaining. Okay, at 15, though, you started modeling. How did that come about? Well, um, a neighbor across the street, this beautiful ballerina girl across the street, she said, you know, I make a lot of money on weekends modeling. And she was in ballet school, at American Ballet uh, School in New York. And she said, why don't you come with me to my agent? They'd like you. So I went on the bus with her, the number 13 bus, and we went to uh, Eileen Ford. Mm -hmm. And uh, I signed up with Eileen Ford for a short, short stint. Um, it was, uh, you know, for me, kind of frightening, but fun. And, uh, and then I, Barbara Stone saw me. She was at Stewart Models. And she said, oh, you must come here. And she and her partners liked me a lot and got me really great jobs. And I, I really paid, paid for my way through college with the residuals from all the commercials I did. So, like, at 16, I was... Cigarette uh, ads. Oh, I did, I did carriage, and I had to learn how to puff. Um, I've never smoked, but I learned how to puff, very sexy cigarette, Terry Chin with the black eye, and I did Life Boy Soap. I was a married woman. I was 16 years old, and I was, I was a married woman in the commercial. It was very fun. And, um, and we photographed it out at Perry Como's house in Shelter Island. He had a house out in Shelter Island or something. That's what they said. It was his house. And uh, I remember these days so clearly because it really was kind of an important step in my life because I learned how to behave in front of a camera. And I've been doing that ever since. And I don't feel self-conscious. I don't feel angst. Nothing, nothing that people talk about. It was kind of fun. And I also learned, you know, what angles and what, what looks good, what kind of smile, all of that stuff. But you were, you were doing a lot of this modeling while you were at Nutley High School. Were the other students jealous? Did that create any issues? Um, I don't I don't think they were jealous, but they all watched Gunsmoke because my commercials were running on Gunsmoke, and that was the number one program at the time. And everybody would be glued on Tuesday nights to Gunsmoke, and um, and they would laugh at laugh at me the next day at school. But like I was the only girl in the in the uh, trigonometry class, and um, and I would you know there, it was it was an odd odd time, and I was just finding my way. I was a good student, very good student, um, but I and I loved my school. I loved Nutley High School. And, um, oh yeah, who's somebody from some Nutley? Oh, Nutley. good. <laughs> I just loved it. And, and I used to have the whole football team come over for breakfast, you know. Uh, my, mother was very, my mother was very kind to whoever I brought home. We would bring the teachers home. Um, my parents were both teachers, so they, they appreciated us liking the teachers. And my mother always said, the teacher is always right. And I still feel that way. And I, I get so depressed when I see how maligned so many teachers are these days. And my last guest on this stage also said that your parents are always right. Um, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Ask my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> you, 
you, then you attended Barnard College of Columbia University and apparently turned down a scholarship to NYU. I did. I, I applied. I wanted to go to Stanford in California. I had never been to California. I had read about it, and I, I really wanted to go there. And I applied, and, um, and I got a scholarship. I, did not, I don't even remember now if I got accepted. I don't think I did really good. I don't think I really finished the application. But, um, but I got a full scholarship at NYU and a partial scholarship to Barnard. But I went up and looked around Barnard and saw its proximity to Columbia. It was such a nice place. And Barnard was uh, uh, very amenable, and, and the, and the, and the uh, president was so great. And so I, I went there. And, uh, what did I you major in? I majored in, um, in history, economics, and architectural history with a lot of minors. I mean, I, I took as many courses as I could possibly take. And at that stage, studying those things, what was your plan or dream that you thought you would do when you graduate? Uh, well, early on, I didn't know. I was just so interested in learning as much as I could about as many subjects as I could, taking art classes with a great professor Whitcover over at Columbia. Col classes were totally open. You could go to any class at Columbia, and you could go to graduate school classes. You could do anything. And, um, and, and my favorite place to study was in the architecture library, Avery. It was such a beautiful little library, and I studied there all the time. Um, I don't... I didn't really think so much about what the career would be. I started to toy with the idea of being an architect and uh, because I'm always studying in this architectural library. Uh, but to make money during college, you also modeled for Chanel. I went to Paris. The, my agency sent me to Paris for um, a stint. Is this the Stewart Agency? Or yeah, in the summertime. <laughs> and uh, and it, was, it was so odd because I, I didn't know what to expect. I, I was studying French so I could speak a little bit of French. They put me in the Rue de Tournon in the Scan, Hotel Scandinavie. I still remember my room up on the fifth floor, walk up. up. And, um, and I had so much fun, but I got maligned because like one of my dresses that I wore to a go-see was wrinkled. And I, they, they called New York and said she came in a wrinkled dress. And I never did that again. And, uh, but I did model uh, in some of the shows and, um, and I, had, I had really fun. And they had parties every single night. And then you would work after the parties because all the collections were available only at nighttime because they were on the runways during the day. Mm -hmm. So I was doing the photography part. So you'd start to work at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was, it was weird. Well, that, so that was your first trip to Paris? Yes. Memorable. Yes. Um, you were also on the cover of Glamour magazine, in the 10 Best Dressed in College issue in August 1961. Yeah. And that was at college. I was dressing myself in homemade fashion. Uh, do you remember Shaney Non? It was, a, it was a high fashion house um, right on like 59th Street off of Park Avenue. A friend's mother uh, Bill was... Cunningham worked, pardon? Was, was Bill Cunningham worked with the... Oh, she did. oh she I didn't know that. Oh, anyway, um, they would buy patterns in Paris. So they were buying Chanel and Balenciaga and different patterns, L'Enfant, and they would bring the patterns home and then make, and the fabrics, and they would make them for their clients here in New York. And so I got the patterns. And um, so I would be cutting, you know, beautiful dresses. I still have a beautiful Chanel jacket that I made. Uh, in my, it's in my attic in my archive. And I still have one of the beautiful dresses that I made from a long van dress, which hide with waist. It was very nice. Com complicated and beautiful. What did, do you remember what you wore on the cover in the glamour shoot? No. A hat. I think I had a hat. Something pinkish. Huh. Okay. So it's also... In the, it's in the archive. <laughs> Her archive is where we all want to be. 
Okay, so while in college, you also met Andrew Stewart. Oh, I did. First, uh, let me see, the like middle of the first year, his sister, who was a fashion icon at the time, uh, married to Stanley Love, the children's dress manufacturer. Do you remember Love Dresses? Vaguely. They were always had the back page ad of the New York Times magazine and uh, little cute little girls' dresses. And um, she would be driven every day to school in a Rolls Royce that had a cab in the front for the driver, and she would sit in the back. And she was very, like, eh, very hoity-toity. And uh, I thought, God, this is, she must be interesting. I'm going to have to talk to her. And she was in a couple of my art classes, art, art history classes. And she came up to me one day and said, would I like to have a date with her brother, who was at Yale Law School? And I said, yeah, sure. She, she showed me a picture, and he looked okay. And... Uh, <laughs> And I said, sure, have him call me. And uh, about three months later, he called. And we had a first date in New York. Um, went to a um, restaurant, like a Japanese, uh, early Japanese restaurant, like on 56th Street on the east side. And uh, fell in love. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had never really dated anybody seriously. I had never slept with anybody either. And, um, and we did all that. And... Uh, <laughs> There's a lot and, of firsts. And we got love at first sight. And uh, my father got very upset with me for bringing, you know, saying I was going to get married. I got, we got married when I was 19. 19? Yeah, 19. So how many, how long did you know him before you got married? Um, not, not even a year. Not even a year. Yeah. But is it true you kept him waiting at the altar at St. Paul's Chapel? Well, we had a lot of travel. I was coming from Nutley, New Jersey to St. Paul's Chapel, and it took a little longer than my father anticipated, and we had to find a parking spot, you know, and the whole thing. <laughs> And we had a very small wedding, which I paid for with my modeling earnings. Even though he's from this family? with Well, yes, but you know, at, at those days, the bride paid for the wedding. And the bride paid for the reception, which was at the Barbary Room in the Berkshire Hotel. And I had never, I had, never had a luncheon. In a, it was a lunch. I never had a fancy lunch in any New York establishment. So I did all the planning. and They were very nice to us. And well, What was your wedding dress? Uh, homemade. My mom and I made it. It was white Swiss embroidered organdy, a short, very bouffant skirt uh, with a tiny, my waist at that time was, I was 19 and my waist was 19. I still have the dress. I can prove it. It fit me. <laughs> And uh, tiny little buttons, like 35 little organdy, you know, covered buttons up down the back. Um, very pretty, big sleeves with little tiny uh, wrists, and a little pillbox hat because at that time pillboxes were big. And um, I had my hair in an updo with a thousand hairpins. I hated that hairdresser because uh, then you had to take all the pins out while you're on your way to the honeymoon, you know, and that was kind of painful. And um, where, where did your honeymoon? in Vermont. We drove a little yellow Mercedes sedan, my, my husband's car, uh, up to Vermont and stayed in little like inns or some you know, places on the way. It was nice. You were scoping a property for later in life. Yeah. Okay, so 1965 was an important year. You gave birth to Alexis Stewart. Yes. Daughter, who is now 58 years old. Yeah, she just turned 58. Can you believe it? Oh. And she has two of the most fabulous children, 11 and 12. Jude and Truman. Yeah. Are you close to them? Well, Jude just sent me an agenda for the weekend. Um, This girl is 12. She just started at a new school. They were at Avenue School downtown where they became fluent in Mandarin. They're also fluent in Spanish. 
and they are, she's a dancer at Alvin Ailey and he's a soccer player. But she sent me an agenda. Could I please bring six friends, or five friends, there are gonna be six of them, on Sunday morning, pick up at eight o'clock in the city. Uh, and then a list, it's a page long, this long list of pick apples, make apple cider, make apple sauce, make apple pies and tarts to take home. And then there is horseback riding two days, sandwiches, picnic outdoors, sleeping in Woodland Cottage, which has nobody's ever slept in the Woodland Cottage. It's way, the most remote building on my property. And they want to sleep out there. And it's very cute. And we're going to take pictures. But I, I, wonder, and, I wonder where she got that from. That was. <laughs> but, you know, I have to set up the whole cooking school. That, I mean, this was my my Columbus Day weekend. I used to go to Maine on Columbus Day and take my friends. Now I'm entertaining six 12-year-olds. <laughs> and I haven't even met three of them. Three of them I haven't met yet, and their mother's called to find out were they going to be safe and were they, everything was going well, to be I okay. They, I think they know they'd be safe. But I don't know if they know who I am. See, I don't, you know, Jude is very, they're very private, these kids. Well, and your daughter uh, has said in, in, in some print a while back, that she grew up with a glue, glue gun pointed at her head. <laughs> I must tell you that she is an amazing designer. She makes all of her jewelry, and she makes Jude's jewelry now. And um, um, so, yeah, so what? She learned how to do stuff. <laughs> and she's also said, which I find hard to believe, that you hate Halloween and would turn off all the lights so no one would come trick-or-treating. Well, that was only when I was not happy, you know. And, <laughs> and, you know, some Halloweens I'm happy and some Halloweens I'm not happy. Just look online at Martha Stewart Halloween costumes and you will see the most extraordinary lineup of Halloween costumes. Right. I have the best Halloween costumes of anybody on earth. And uh, so Alexis was not paying attention those years. <laughs> Okay, so this one, you're going to have the lights on this time. Oh, yeah. The, yeah the, hor the horses just went out. I have these mechanized horses that we sold in Grandin Road. They're large skeletons of beautiful horses. And they, they light up and they neigh. They make evil neigh in the driveway. And so they're, they're already out in the driveway. They got put up today. The pumpkins have, have arrived from the garden and from the pumpkin farm. And they're all out there now. And then um, other things will be happening. It's Oktoberfest at Martha's World. <laughs> I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to the European Political Systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than what to do when faced with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. My name is Dana Torito, and my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, takes a closer look at Alzheimer's disease and those affected by it. Like many of you, I've experienced the disease firsthand. I've been an advocate and care partner for decades and have written extensively about the subject. Each week, I'll talk to people who've been personally affected by the disease and learn how they coped with it. Folks like TV personality Lisa Gibbons. Action is the antidote for fear. And nurse and dementia researcher Dr. Fayron Epps. We no longer can be silent. We have to speak up. We have to share our experiences so we can help each other and learn from each other. Listen to The Memory Whisper on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, so then we go to 67, 72. You began your career on Wall Street. How did you get your start there? Um, I, I decided after, after school that I did want a, a career in Wall Street. I sort of got interested in investing, bought, bought some stocks through my father-in-law, and um, started to learn about American companies. And I thought this would be an interesting, um, an interesting place to go. I interviewed Merrill Lynch. I interviewed... Uh, Parker Redpath, something in Auckland called Parker and Redpath. They were too snotty. And, um, and then I interviewed a little firm called Pearlberg Moness. And, um, and these go-go guys, I mean, they were the wild guys. That was, if you saw Wall Street, the movie, this was Wall Street times 10. And that appealed to me. I just really, <laughs> I really liked that atmosphere because they were, they were making a lot of money and they were investing in very avant-garde companies like, like McDonald's. Can you imagine McDonald's? They were early, early investors in McDonald's, which has been one of the best investments Absolutely. ever. And they were uh, investing in uh, something called electronic data systems, EDS. They gave me some really difficult clients they gave me um, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. They, they were really hard. I had to go to Rockefeller Center and pitch them stocks. They gave me Fidelity in Boston. I had to take the plane up to Boston. 
And I one day, I my husband said to me at night, he said, where were you all day? And I said, well, I had to fly up to Boston. I took this funny little man, he's like, like from right out of the army, uh, Ross Perot, to sell <laughs> electronic data systems to Fidelity. And uh, Ross Perot, I mean, he ran for president, remember? He invited me, and not in the right party, but, um, but he, he invited me to his, to his uh, acceptance speech when he was running. And I had, I had so much fun with him. He was really interesting. And that company was really interesting. Were there many other women there at the time? Was it there was one other woman called Donna. She was tough. She got bitten by a shark, and then she stopped working. <laughs> a, a real shark, a real shark. Literally. Yeah, yeah, a real shark. And... Um, <laughs> And these guys were collecting art. Barbara Nessums were hanging on the wall and, and Robert Motherwells. I mean, th this was a wild place, just like the movie. And the education that I got was so good. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, what stayed with you from that? What did you learn? What was the most important thing you learned from that? Um, it was good research. Research? Yes. I learned a lot about research from Frank Williams, who is still working and is still doing stuff. Um, and he's uh, and, and just amazing how important really researching companies, like researching Tesla, okay? You have to research these companies before you really take a, take a stand on them. And, uh, and Apple and Microsoft. And you can also have a boyfriend who worked at Microsoft. That was a good one. That was the good boyfriend. Um, and I learned a lot about software and I learned about, a lot about Microsoft and about what they do and, and how they do it. Were you able to buy those stocks? Oh, yeah, yeah. I bought everything, yeah. <laughs> well, that was a good job then. Okay, tell us about moving to Turkey Hill Road in Westport, Connecticut and restoring a 19, an 1805 house. Was that your first major renovation project? Well, we had a little cottage in the Berkshires first, and we learned how to do plumbing and carpentry. I was a bad carpenter. I was an even worse plumber, but I was a very good painter and very good decorator and very good at, um, at, at finishing things. And uh, you would not have liked my kitchen cabinet so much, but I did build the entire cabinet, cabinet, all the cabinets in the kitchen. And this was like a playhouse in the middle of nowhere in Middlefield, Massachusetts, right down the road from Glendale Falls. Some friends down the street had a TV and we watched our moon landing. That was so exciting. And we, we, it, was a, it was a fantastic time. And it was a very nice upbringing for my daughter. She loved it there. And she um, became a horse adventurer and she, it, was, it was all very nice. But then, then Westport. Then we bought Westport, Andy and I. We shouldn't have gone that far out. I mean, it was, it was a long commute. Mm -hmm. But um, actually, he was working in Greenwich, and I was working in New York, so the onus was on me to go all the way to New York every day. So it was kind of hard, but um, I loved my house. It was an 1805 farmhouse, a federal farmhouse. Um, it was a complete wreck when we bought it on two acres. We bought the next two acres, and then we bought another two acres. And so I was on six acres, which I transformed into a very beautiful garden, which is still extremely beautiful. The new owners, the people I sold it to about 20 years ago, have taken amazing good care of the place. Was it at this house that I read that you reportedly had very risque and nude pool parties? I don't know where that comes from. I, that, I never had a nude pool party ever. I think people swam in the nude, but it was not a party. Okay. <laughs> Much better. I'll, I'll be yeah. sure to fix that. I want to, I want to know where that comes from. Oh. Okay. So then, it, was it in that basement in 1976, you and a model friend, Norma Collier, started a catering business? Oh yeah, Norma Collier, who was also a, one of the 10 best dressed college girls the year before I was. And Norma Collier was... Um, 
a very um, sort of stiff woman with two kids and a German husband, and she was very, very strict. And, um, and she and I became partners in the Uncatered Affair. That was the name of our catering business. She lasted less than a year. And uh, she was a good cook, but she did not want to work hard like that. That was hard work. You said Julia Child was a huge influence. Did you really cook every recipe in her two volumes? I absolutely did. Mastering the art of And I cooking. should have been in that movie. You should have been in that movie. <laughs> that movie should have happened then. I would have been a much better Julia. Julie. Julie. I'm not Julia. I would have been Julie. Meryl Streep, I could have been the student, but I was too old by then. Well, also, uh, with your catering business, in 1977, you were hired to do the opening party of a gorgeous new store in New York called Abitare on 57th Street, between 3rd and 2nd. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. I was doing the PR at the time. Oh, you were? That's the first oh. time I met you. Was my party nice? I'll tell you, your party was beautiful. It's the first time we ever saw tables of crudité that were not just strips of carrots and celery. Everything was in, you know, the it was chips. Of cabbages. And, 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 and yeah. everything was inside the radicchio heads and the cabbage heads. It was gorgeous, but you made everybody in the store crazy. Why? Because you tried to move everything around and you... You were like making them all nuts. And I remember saying well, to my friends, she's never going to make it in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so much for my prediction. Uh, but uh, I, I did the big party um, in the armory for the Folk Art Museum antique show. That was one of the funnest parties because I brought in cages of chickens, live chickens that were growing, and bales of hay. This is before the fire department got smart. And... Uh, <laughs> And that was, that was such a beautiful party. And people, are, people still talk about that because it was unusual. Absolutely. And now it's not so unusual to see live chickens walking around in cages and stuff. You know, it's like cows, cows are at parties now. Yeah. Okay, then Andrew became the president of Harry Abrams Publishing. And he hired your catering company to do a big book release for a title that was a very, very successful book, The Secret Book of Gnomes. Yes. But the first one was Fairies. Oh. The party, the, that party was fairies, oh, okay. and it was by Rune Portfleet, a Dutch author and illustrator, and we did the fairies party, and that's where I met, that's where I met everybody in publishing. I met uh, Alan Merkin, who was running Crown Publishers mm -hmm. at the time, and what a lovely, lovely man he was, and he was walking around looking. I had girls dressed as fairies. We had it at the U.S. Customs House, which is one of the great landmark Beautiful. buildings here in New York, way down in the financial district. And um, I had, uh, every, all the girls had wings and they had little gossamer dresses and serving, uh, we cooked omelets on, on those little stoves all night long. It was a late party. Uh, guests were invited to come like at 10 o'clock at night and stay until two or three. My mother-in-law decided to do the coat check and she, Forgot to give numbers. <laughs> and just a little, just a little glitch in the evening because nobody could get their coats. It was so hor horrific. But uh, I remember that was the only bad thing about that party. But, uh, but it was such a beautiful, beautiful party. And Mr. Merkin, Alan, um, invited me to um, come and talk to them about doing a book. And that was your first big book? And that was my book, Entertaining. How many of you have that book? Can't see anybody. It was really a storybook, it was a picture book, and it was a recipe book. And I worked on it with a woman called Elizabeth Hawes, uh, who was married to a crazy guy called Davis Weinstock. 
And, and your next books were done under the Clarkson Potter. Yeah, that's, that's, that's Crown, yeah. Clarkson Potter is an imprint of Crown Publishers, and I've been with them ever since 1982, so that's over 40 years. And that was the same time that a good friend of mine who you knew well, Lee Bailey, was doing cookbooks. Oh, I love And those Lee. were the first real cookbooks with photographs oh, yes. of the food. Before yes. that, you never saw pictures of the food. Exactly. And Clarkson Potter, at first, when they saw the entertaining and the, the volume of pictures and, and text, they said, well, how about black and white? I said, absolutely not. It has to be a full-color book. It has to be a beautiful book in addition to being a useful book. And so that's been the, the whole, um, uh, that's, that, that's my modus operandi for books. It has to be beautiful. It has to be useful. It has to be practical. And you have to be able to read it. And you have to be able to read it. So we're on the 100th now. Well, the books followed Martha Stewart Quick Cook, Martha Stewart Hors d'oeuvres, Martha Stewart Pies and Tarts, Weddings, The Wedding Planner, Martha Stewart Secrets for Entertaining, Quick Cook, quick cook Menus, Martha Stewart Christmas, and now it's up to 100 books. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's very exciting. 100 very. books. Come on. And that was followed by endless articles in magazines, newspapers, TV appearances on Oprah and Larry King. Any of those um, experiences stand out to you? As well, I still have my, my first interview on Oprah when she was in Baltimore. It was, it was so interesting. To, it's so interesting to look at that interview with Oprah then and then uh, and see Oprah now. It's, it's incredible. And, and the same thing with Rosie O'Donnell. I, it was early interviews with Rosie and being on her show. Um, the whole... His, my life has really spanned so many decades that, and so many interesting things happened in each of those decades in terms of, of media, in terms of fashion, in terms of uh, just lifestyle, evolution of lifestyle. It's been a very interesting, an interesting life. That's why you're here tonight. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, but then kind of that time your marriage was over, you separated in 87. During the wedding book tour. <laughs> now take that. And that, that was so cruel. Oh, it was so cruel having to talk about weddings when you get in the middle of a, like, a, not a very nice divorce. Well, that was after 26 years together, and you were quoted in, uh, to CNN saying in, in 2017, quote, I had to sacrifice a marriage because of the lure of the great job, the fabulous workplace, but I don't regret it at all because what I've done is something bigger and better than just one marriage. Do you want oh, to elaborate nice. on that? <laughs> I must have. <laughs> That's okay. I have to remember to look that one up. <clears throat> a little embroidered on a pillow. Or something. Um, I also read that you dated Sir Anthony Hopkins for a while, but broke up because you couldn't stop thinking of him as a Hannibal Lecter. Well, that's true, too, because um, I was introduced to him by Tom Cruise when he was still married to Nicole. And they took me out introduced to... Introduced by Tom Cruise. That's yeah. not a bad matchmaker. No, that was nice. I mean, they took me out to dinner with Anthony and uh, Sir Hopkins and um, out in California. And then he took me back to his house. It was a nice house. It wasn't great. And, um, <laughs> and I was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And, um, and I, I, I said I had to go back to the hotel because I had to work the next morning. And then he said, please, you know, come back, to, come back tomorrow night. And he was very nice, very, very nice. But then I was trying to think if I could possibly invite him up to Maine because I have this large home in Maine. And I, I just couldn't think of having him stay on this, like the second floor because it's too, too close to Hannibal. I mean, really, he's a very good actor. <laughs> 
how stupid. He was, he's a very interesting man. How stupid. <laughs> Other famous men you've dated? Famous? Um, mm-hmm. um, the, the man who invented um, Word and Excel for Microsoft. He was number 13 employee at Microsoft. Um, he's a geek. His, his, his T-shirts read, Eminence Geek. And so I should have taken that as a, but that was 15 years. I, I dated him for 15 years. And, um, and he, you know, he had, the, he had the boat, he had the plane, he had the helicopters, he had, you know, all that stuff. It's a transportation. Uh, and then he had the transportation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, but I, I actually really was, I was really very kind, as you, you put in my thing, you know, I was a nice, nice person. And um, I, I thought he should have kids. And I was, I was too old to have kids at that point. And I, you know, I kept encouraging him, you know, have some babies someplace, you know, because, um, so then he, he married somebody like 25 years younger than he, of course, and uh, she got all the planes and the boats and all of that stuff. And the babies. And the babies. Okay, in 1990, you signed with Time Publishing Ventures to develop a new magazine called Martha Stewart Living that started with a base circulation of 350,000, and it peaked years later at over 2 million copies per issue. Tell us about that magazine, which I loved very much. Well, it, it passed its 40th anniversary, which I was very proud of. Um, the magazine was presented first as a book, series of books to Clarkson Potter. Um, I said, you know, I, I, I'd like to write about all other subjects, not just food. And I had done food and gardening and weddings. And I thought that there are many other categories of lifestyle that I could really write about. Uh, including collecting, including entertaining, including uh, decorating, including um, uh, just um, special special life events, um, and they said, "Ah, you know, we'll just we'll just do books. We're, we're planning to do books on all those subjects, but we don't want you just to do." I called them the beautiful how-to books. So then I thought, "Ah, well, the format that would really work for all of this would be a magazine." And at the time, in 1989, uh, magazines were not doing so well. Um, there were sev- several magazines. I think for every new magazine, three were closing. And uh, because of the advertising at that climate at that time. But um, I went to Cy Newhouse. He gave me, he liked the idea. And he liked uh, the name Living. And uh, he gave me the money to build a prototype. And I worked with Judd Tertian and several other really talented people to create this beautiful, beautiful prototype magazine. And then when Sai saw it, um, and we became friends during the process, Sai saw it, he said, oh, well, what do you want to call it? And I said, well, Martha Stewart Living. And he said, well, this is Condé Nast, Martha, and it has to be Condé Nast Living. And I said, well, if that's a deal breaker, can I have the prototype? And he gave me the prototype. And I went to um, another very powerful, lovely man. Um, I went to um, Succession, (laughs) to Rupert. And, um, and I first met with his lawyers. I was in a room way up high in some building. And, um, and they're all very, they're waiting for Rupert to show up. And they're all chatting away and being friendly. And they had, they had sort of thumbed through the prototype. And Rupert came in. They all changed totally. I mean, it was just, it really was like the, like the TV like show. The, yeah. Rupert changed the whole Energy room. The room. Oh, my God. He really had it. At that, especially at that time, this is 1989, he was fantastic. And he said, he looked at it and he said, I would really like to do this, but I'm selling my magazines. I'm, you know, 17, I just sold, and I'm selling this, and I'm selling that. And he said, I, I suggest you take this to time. 
So he gave me at least a lead to Time. And so I went to Time and met with uh, uh, the CEO and the president uh, of Time magazines. And we had lunch at Caravel restaurant. And the guys looked through the prototype at lunch and they said, yeah, this is the July issue. What are you going to do next July? It looks like you covered it. And I said, well, you don't get it. It's living is limitless. This is a subject matter that can go on for years and years and years. And they, they finally bought it. And they, but they did. Um, I said, if you don't like it after a while, you know, here's a piece of paper. What's the price for me to get it back? Because it was a 50-50 kind of partnership. And they wrote down a, a kind of an astronomical sum at the time. But it turned out to be a bargain when I, after, after the few years I was there. And I bought it back. And how soon after that did Martha Stewart Living become a TV show? Oh, pretty soon, right after. I, I believed in a word called synergy. At first, Time thought that was a dirty word. And I thought, you know, Time, you're, get with it. You know, TV does not cannibalize the magazine. People who watch TV don't necessarily buy the magazine, but if they get hooked on the TV show, they'll buy the magazine. And we had big arguments about synergy. Um, and the synergy went on, and I mean, this, these arguments went on. It was really kind of boring after a while. But I got a TV show. At first it was a weekly, once, once a week show on CBS. Then it went to daily, and, uh, and that was fantastic. In retrospect, I wouldn't be doing a daily magazine if I were re myself, if I were still being editor-in-chief and creator of the magazine itself. Because you, you, you take all, you know, you just can't balance it all. It's very hard. And uh, even though I had a fabulous editor-in-chief, Isolde Motley, who stayed and worked for time after uh, a while, I was always doing too much. But, uh, but it was great. And then uh, the TV show became very successful. The, um, and, I, and I liked doing it because I got such great guests on the show. Everybody wanted to be a guest. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, Russell Crowe came on. You know, what the heck? You know, and... Uh, and, and all the late night hosts came on because they loved the show. Everybody did. Yeah. Um, and when did you start? When did you meet and start working with your longtime publicist, Susan Magrino? Oh, about forty years ago, a little bit more. Susan was maybe an associate editor, uh, uh, but she was doing PR and marketing at Clarkson Potter. Okay. So that's where we met. The and books. I remember encouraging her. She would go on all the book trips with me. I mean, we went. We went to all over the country, and we had so much fun. When we went down to Mississippi, we stopped in to visit uh, John Grisham. And we stopped in, we had Dom Perignon for breakfast with him. And then we would drive around and rented Cadillacs, and uh, we had so much fun. And we still have fun. She went to Paris with me this past weekend. Just came back yeah. from your trip to Hermes. Yep. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway listening to the B-52s. 
looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts fear the unknown is the greatest fear of all And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than what to do when faced with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. My name is Dana Torito, and my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, takes a closer look at Alzheimer's disease and those affected by it. Like many of you, I've experienced the disease firsthand. I've been an advocate and care partner for decades and have written extensively about the subject. Each week, I'll talk to people who've been personally affected by the disease and learn how they coped with it. Folks like TV personality Lisa Gibbons. Action is the antidote for fear. And nurse and dementia researcher Dr. Fayron Epps. We no longer can be silent. We have to speak up. We have to share our experiences so we can help each other and learn from each other. Listen to The Memory Whisper on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. You did mention the late night talk shows. I mean, you've been on Letterman, Fallon, Seth Meyer, all of those often. Is there one that's your favorite? Oh, no, it's like my children. You can never say that. They're all so different. I did like messing up David Letterman's suit. I did, I was able, they let me pour stuff on his suit and they said nobody's ever been able to do that before. And he didn't hit me. And then a couple of years later, you were working with Sharon Patrick and managed to purchase all your television, print, and merchandising ventures related to this Martha Stewart brand, consolidated into a new company, which you became chairman, chairwoman, CEO, and president of Martha Stewart Omnimedia. Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. How did that change everything? Wow, it was great. And, uh, and the, the contracts were wonderful. We got Kmart to approve a contract that allowed us to, to license all the products that we were developing. My, my theory was that if you read the magazine, and you get all these fantastic ideas, everything. Every, I mean, if you see a yellow towel in our magazine, you want that towel. And, but you can't make the towel, but you could buy the towel. So that's how the merchandising started. So Omnimedia meant, in the center, it was, the, it was like a solar system. I, my business plan was beautiful. Um, it, was, it was the solar system. Mid, middle was content. Uh, the first uh, little um, orbit, orbit was uh, Omnimedia. So that was the magazines and the books. Then it was omni-merchandising, the products that emanated from all that content. Then it was omni-internet. 
because the internet was just starting. I mean, Google is just 25 years old, and my magazine's 40 years old. But in 1982, I bought my first computer, so I knew that computers were going to be something special, and and uh, it's all it's all panned out. And then you went then you went public on the New York Stock Exchange, October 1999, 23 years ago. What was that day like? Well, I remember serving croissant. And, and nice drinks to all the to all the traders on the floor, and um, and this and the company um, went public with great enthusiasm, and the stock went from eighty eighteen dollars a share opening price to about thirty seven dollars a share, so we became instant billionaires. You were the first female self made billionaire in the U S. before. Yeah, and I remember, uh, but. But I, I, the, the funnest thing was, I remember driving up Madison Avenue and saying, oh, gosh, I could stop anywhere and buy anything today. <laughs> it was so, ex- it, that was exciting. And then I went home and my mom, my mom had sold all her stock and she was, a bil- she was a millionaire at the end of the day. She was smart. She sold the stock on the first day. But uh, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, uh, we didn't put, a, we didn't put a, a stop gap on her. She was just, the, she was uh, very smart. But then what happened a couple of years later? You got a tip from your broker. Tell no, I didn't that. get a tip. It was, all that is old, old news. When, um, and, and I ran into a, a financial problem, um, and I was accused of lying about, um, it's in, uh, lying about a crime I didn't commit. So it's kind of convoluted. You're going to have to wait for my documentary, which is coming out next year, to learn the real story. And I'm not talking about it. And it was at the wrong time. I was in the wrong time at the wrong place. Look what's going on in the newspapers today. Yeah. Supreme Court Justice Menendez, Trump. Nah. All right. Okay. So, so you're not going to tell us the, about five months in a prison in West Virginia? Oh, the five months were fine. They were, it was like going to camp. It was, <laughs> it was called Camp Alderson. We, we nicknamed it Camp Alderson. It was on the grounds of an all-girls private school. Like a, like a junior college in West Virginia on a river polluted by the coal mines. Um, and, um, and it was kind of interesting. I was in a dormitory. I had a, a roommate. She, uh, she had the top bunk. I had the bottom bunk. And she slept with giant curlers in her hair every night. And, um, and you, were not, you were allowed three books a week. That's all you were allowed, three books from the library. And uh, I, I managed to get more books. There were like things to do at night after after dinner. You there was um, craft classes. There was a writing class. There was an entrepreneurial. Did you conduct class. all these classes? No, no. I, I I actually taught entrepreneurial behavior, and that and when I, I got I asked for business plans. Oh gosh, there were some crazy plans. Um, very in- interesting. And I helped I helped a lot of women there, and I made some nice friends. Um, Sister Carol Gilbert. She was a a Catholic nun who had been convicted of of um, trespassing on government property on a nuclear warhead site out in Colorado. She was there for uh, like 15 years. Horrible, horrible misjustice uh, and injustice. I learned, a, I learned a lot about the American penal system and how stupid it is. Um, but Do you remember a visit you had when you were there from the designer Ralph Rucci, who's here tonight? He managed to smuggle in some fracas fragrance for you. <laughs> The, the smuggling stuff worked sort of. I mean, uh, thanks, Ralph. Um, 
We love Ralph. We love him. Um, but I had nice visitors. I, Nathan, Nathan Mervold from Microsoft came down in his private plane to, to see me and talk. Uh, Gil Butler came down from New York to talk about my foundation and what I should do. I mean, amazing visits. Andy Moness, my, my old stockbroker boss, he came down on the wrong day and had to go back. They wouldn't let him see me. And, um, you know, stuff like that, stupid stuff. I got put into solitary, which was like a hallway with a bench in it for a day because I, they found a hard-boiled egg in my room. Uh, <laughs> I made apple jelly from the crab apples growing outside our dormitory, and, and that was okay. They didn't mind that. They I didn't cooked. invite you into the kitchen to cook huh? anything? Oh, no. No, you wouldn't want to be in that kitchen. Um, you know, 12-month-old eggs and you know, stuff's crazy. But um, I had a friend, Adiyam, who uh, was there for not, not telling stories on her boyfriend. And her mother is uh, from Eritrea, and she would bring those, that soft, beautiful bread, you know, the, the uh, Ethiopian bread stuffed in her bra, because it didn't, didn't show up on the x-rays, and we would eat that delicious anjaya bread. Oh, so good. Okay, so that really didn't change a lot in your life, because when you came out, there were deals for Kmart, Sears, more shows. Yep. You were on the Hallmark Channel, you acted in Law & Order SVU, you were on Ugly Betty, and then you Sirius <laughs> XM, you did flooring and furniture collections, wines, frozen fruit with Costco. No, it was okay. <laughs> and because I think people realize the, the enormity of, of uh, injustice and, and crazy stuff going on. How many different lines do you have or have you had licensed... Um, quite a few. Um, I, I especially love doing the, doing the home goods, the kitchenwares. We have some beautiful kitchenwares. We just started our, our own Martha store on Amazon, which is growing uh, nicely. I was doing a very nice fashion line talking about fashion icons on QVC, which did very well. I mean, they, they loved my embroidered jeans. I had peacocks on them because of my peacocks and uh, poppy flowers because I grow a lot of poppies. Uh, we did very nice, very nice clothing for QVC, well-fitted um, and well-made. Uh, my down puffer vest is very popular still. We're now making it in leather which everybody loves, pleather, not real leather, vegan leather. And all of this is online? To a lot of it's online. I'm doing a line of Skechers, which are extremely popular. Those um, commercials are running. Yeah, they're office. running all the time. And I, I, I'm actually really having some influence on, uh, on the designs and on the um, actual fabrication. Um, and they're very nice, very nice, comfortable shoes. Even my male friends are wearing them. And you got um, your friend, which we'll talk about, Snoop Dogg. Tell us about that relationship. <laughs> uh, Snoop and I became friends on my program. He came to, to talk about brownies and, and uh, different recipes a uh, long, long time ago. And then we were, asked, uh, we were both asked to be on the Justin Bieber roast. And Snoop and I sat next to each other and rebonded. And somebody saw our, our behavior on that roast and asked us if we would do a show. We did the Martha and Snoop Potluck dinner party show, which was very fun. I got to meet every rapper, every, every performer that I had never dreamed of, of meeting and talking to on that show. We had a great time. And I brought, I brought unusual foods. I mean, I brought Mr. Chow on and, um, and Snoop had to eat stuff that he had never tasted before. He now has two successful cookbooks because of me. Yeah, because of me. <laughs> And he also has a line at Skechers. And he has a new holiday show coming up. Oh, he's, he's doing a lot of good stuff. 
And uh, here's a movie coming out too, which I cannot wait for. And I also read, which I'm very excited about, you're creating a healthy cat and dog food line, cooperation with Chewy.com. Yes, oh, that's uh, just hitting the stores and uh, my dogs love it. My cat is a little fussy, but, uh, but she, she's, she's, uh, she'll like it when she, <laughs> when she gets nothing else to eat. Um, <laughs> Empress Tang has everything. Uh, she's the greatest. Um, How many animals do you have? Oh, several hundred, because I have, I have uh, five horses, five donkeys, five, I, I ride the horses, and the girls are riding on Sunday and Monday. Um, we have peacocks, we have all kinds of, we have the United Nations of geese, we have German geese, we have Chinese geese, we have Italian geese, we have French geese, the ones with the big livers, and we have um, American geese, and they're beautiful, and, they're, and they're, they're all living happily on the property. Okay, let's go to Sports Illustrated, May 2023 cover. How did that opportunity come to you, and were you at all hesitant about being photographed in a bathing suit at your age? Um, well, I have, I, my body's pretty good, and you know, <laughs> I work out. I I got I got the call in November. Susan Magrino. I I don't know if it's Susan's called me first to warn me that they were going to call. Somebody called me, and so I was waiting for MJ Day, who's this fabulous editor. She's been the editor of the Sports Illustrated magazine for quite a while. Young, beautiful, blonde. And um, she said, you know, we're, 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 we'd like you to, you know, pose for the swimsuit issue. And you want to do that. I mean, for heaven's sake, to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 82 years old on the, in a bathing suit. And I didn't know I had nine pages to do and nine different bathing suits. So we get, we, they, she said, it's in two months. We're going to go down to, um, to Casa de Campo in the Dominican Republic. And it was, it was fun. I got there on a Thursday night, I think it was. No, Wednesday night. Had to try on, I don't know how many bathing suits. And, you know, you have to sort of like, I had, had, I had been waxed. I had been um, spray tanned. I had been coiffed and bleached, you know, the whole, the whole thing. Um, I think I even had my face waxed. I mean, all kinds of straight, you do all these things. And I don't spend a lot of time on that. I have to have makeup for TV every day, but I don't spend a lot of time doing the other stuff. But I do go, I did go to Pilates. I discovered Pilates and I went at least three times a week, sometimes four times a week to Pilates and then continued horseback riding and and my regular trainer. So I got in good shape. And it shows in the pictures. It totally does. I mean, it shows. And you and you and it's and it's kind of fun. I mean, being poked and prodded, and they called them girls. I mean, you know, for heaven's sake, you know, let's push your girls this way or that. I mean, they have a whole different language in a bathing suit shoot. So, is uh, Playboy next? Never. Okay, we won't, we won't wait for that. Or what about the new TV show on the the Bachelor? Is the Golden Bachelor? You can be the Golden Bachelorette. No. No. No interest. No? Okay. Okay, and we talked about... Skateboards. They asked me to be dancing on the stars. Ooh. That kind of appealed to me, but I had to, you had to spend too much time out west. And so I, I have a business. I can't spend that time out on the west coast. A good friend of mine, which is who's usually always here but is out tonight, Jeffrey Banks, posted a picture of Kevin McCarthy as on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> so that's just wait, just wait. I, I was at a dinner, and, I, and this handsome man was sitting two seats for me until I realized who it was. It was Kevin McCarthy. Ugh. Um, is it true that your shoe size is 12? 
Excuse me? Your shoe size? Is a, is a 10. 10? Somebody tell me you were size 12. 12? And I thought, no way. <laughs> and do you really have someone paint the red bottoms of the Louboutin shoes black? I painted you them. You paint them black? With a black Sharpie pen. Because I don't want red heels on my, red soles on my shoes like everybody else. Good for you. Okay. <laughs> he, he accosted me about that. He was not happy. He was on this stage with me. He was. Okay. Okay. Um, and you're doing a new a, Ford, a, a line of comfortable gardening clothes with Tractor Supply Company. I think that sounds fantastic. Very fun. So, yeah, cause that, what do I wear every day? I wear that stuff in the garden. I, I have a big, big garden and, I, and uh, a big property, and I have to wear comfortable clothes, and I still have to look nice. I remember my daughter when she was at Greens Farms Academy. She came home one day and she said, Mother, can I ask you to do one thing? And I said, what? She said, do not wear your apron to the grocery store. Because <laughs> somebody said and told her that they had seen me in an apron. So, so you have to look nice when you go to the grocery store. And, and uh, I want all women to feel comfortable and work, work well and still have, you know, have some style. That's great. What's your favorite item that you have with your name on it? My, very, oh, my square ladle. Square ladle. Oh, isn't that weird? I don't think I've... It's a ladle. You know, usually ladles are round or oval or, like, you know, but this is a square one with the handle on one side. So it's like when you're filling jelly jars, you pour... So you have a corner. Yes. Mm. And so that's one of my very favorite tools. Um, and the weirdest? And the weirdest thing on my name on it. Kevin? Mm. What? Dibber. A dibber? Yeah, you need a dibber. What's, what's a dibber is a pointed, pointed tool where you, that you push down into the ground to plant bulbs or little plants. And uh, that's called a gibber. Um, I'm going to go to some uh, audience questions, but then I have two more things to still ask you. A uh, question from a Ukrainian woman to a Polish woman. Do you prefer your pierogies boiled or fried? Oh, boiled, always boiled first, and then next day warmed in brown butter. Nice. Okay, what was your most memorable wardrobe malfunction? Hmm. Oh, I, had a, I went to a dinner at the White House, and for some stupid reason, I wore a, um, a beautiful suit, by the way, a Ralph Lauren pink silk shantung suit, but it had culottes. And I got, I got kind of maligned for wearing culottes to the White House formal dinner. What is the best gift you have ever received? Best gift was the birth of my child. Oh. And the second best were the two grandchildren. Great. What advice do you have for any aspiring entrepreneurs watching or listening to you tonight? Um, if you have a good idea and you have a passion for that idea, uh, take it to the next level. Build a business plan. Be serious. Know that the work is all ahead of you. That business plan is easy compared to what comes afterward. And, and go for it. I, I think going for it is like the best thing that you could possibly ever do. Um, I'd like to end tonight's talk with something that you said to Booth Moore from Women's Wear Daily in a talk during the magic show in Vegas. And this is a quote from you. You must really assume an authentic personality. You must be authentic to yourself and to the public. You must learn every day so that you can teach every day. I am a teacher. I don't think of reinvention as much as I think of evolution. I want to evolve and evolve and get better and not stay the same. And that's the truth. That's the truth. That is the truth. And tonight we had a master class from the best teacher in the world. Thank you. Thank you.
That is so nice. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. As a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.